You're listening to the Australian Hunting Podcast, your number one source for everything hunting, shooting, fishing, and a little bit of politics. Sit back and relax as we interview some of the most experienced outdoorsmen in the industry today. You'll learn valuable tips and tricks that you can use on your next trip into the field to make you a more successful hunter, shooter, and fisherman. Now here's your host of the Australian Hunting Podcast, Jason Selms. Welcome back to the Australian Hunting Podcast. Of course, I'm your host, Jason Selms, and this is episode 17. UK shooter, hunter, and journalist, Mike Yardley. All right, this is episode 17. Uh, This is our first episode after our extravaganza month of February. Uh, where we had Tom Knapp and MLC, Shooters and Fishers Party, Mr. Robert Borzak. And uh, if you guys don't know who Mike Yardley is, you can actually go on his website at positiveshooting.com. Uh, it was great talking to Mike. Mike is like an, an encyclopedia of hunting. It's just crazy. Uh, he's done a lot of stuff in his life. He's written over 3,000 articles in shooting. He's a very, very keen hunter. Uh, loves shooting sporting clays, he loves his shotguns, and he, and he loves nostalgic uh, firearms that have meaning, and uh, he certainly is a person out there who's trying to push forward the sport of hunting and shooting. Uh, it, was, it was great to be able to talk to him, we spoke for about an hour and 20 minutes, and uh, he dropped a lot of knowledge on me, and just, you know, it's great when you do these podcasts, because you talk to, I talk to all different types of people, and it's great to get an idea of how these people, you know, got into shooting, uh, their story on how they got into it, how they're helping other people, I mean, it's just fantastic, and I'm glad, you know, I was a person that could uh, get into this sport, and also, you know, I've got, I've got the bug of hunting and shooting as well, so I can't really complain at all. Um, in saying that too, as you know, the last couple of weeks, uh, Mr. Buffett O'Farrell of the Liberal government here in New South Wales uh, decided to, he wants to introduce new ammunition laws. Now, if you haven't heard about it, uh, which no doubt you probably have if you've uh, listened to the news or you're on any forums, uh, he wants uh, licensed law-abiding shooters to basically uh, not be able to buy any ammunition for firearms they don't own. Now, offhand, it probably doesn't sound too bad, but uh, how on earth are you going to police this, Mr. O'Farrell? Let's say I go to the uh, f- uh, the gun shop and I buy, say, a 1,000 loads of uh, 12-gauge trap shells to take to the range. Now, he's not going to know when I shoot them, how many I shoot, where I'm going to shoot them, and how long it's going to take me to shoot those 1,000 rounds. So it's just ridiculous, but I don't even think they've thought of the logistics because... I know people that have got 30 or 40 guns. So when you go into a gun shop, how on earth are they going to tell how many guns you've got? I mean, it can't fit on your license. Are they going to reprint out everyone's license? Are they going to spend millions of dollars getting that sorted out? I mean, it's going to be a huge hassle for firearms dealers. Um, and let's say, what is if you don't have a firearm, and which you're illegally allowed to do, you, you, you say you're borrowing one from a friend so long as you're licensed. Well, that means he's going to have to give you the ammunition... Um, to shoot that firearm. So then does that make it illegal if you take that firearm and use ammunition for a firearm you don't have? Oh, it's just ridiculous. And um, honestly, the police in New South Wales have failed miserably. Um, the police minister and the minister, sorry, the, uh, the commissioner of police have uh, decided to jump on the bandwagon and blame licensed law-abiding citizens uh, for the gang and biker and drug crime that's been happening in parts of southwestern Sydney. Uh, apparently, the two, 1996 and 2002 uh, firearm buyback and high-caliber pistol buybacks actually worked. Well, honestly, uh, the police minister and the uh, commissioner for police need to wake up and get with the program because none of the laws they've introduced have done anything 
to reduce those crimes, um, from those biker crimes, drive-by shootings. I mean, it's worse than it was years ago. It's just disgusting. And, and honestly, the uh, Barry O'Farrell, the police minister and the commissioner of police, know uh, they've had no effect on gun crime. I'm not sure what they're doing. I mean, I, I don't say that they're not under competing demands to try and solve this crime and try and get these firearms off the street. But the uh, they've obviously decided to take the easy option, which is pretty poor in my opinion, which is to blame licensed law-abiding shooters. Uh, it really is disgusting. Um, they should be ashamed of themselves. And uh, it's about time, instead of blaming us, they actually got out there and started to get guys out there, get guys on the beat and try and reduce gun crime and try and get their task force in order so they can reduce this crime and not blame law-abiding citizens. Uh, sorry, stop blaming law-abiding citizens for their short miscomings uh, in their police work. So um, I hope this doesn't go through. Write it to all your local members to put a stop to this ammunition law because uh, unfortunately they've got support from the Greens I think and Labor as well so I mean this really doesn't look good for shooters in New South Wales uh, which is very very disappointing so get onto your local members get your letter writing uh, you know Go into, the, go into your local members' offices if you can. Uh, it's better than just sending an email, which you know, most people won't even listen to anyway. Uh, also, too, we've got great news coming out of Canada. Now, most people know I lived in Canada for almost a year in 2003, and uh, Canada finally got through the lower house. I can't remember the exact votes. I think it was 153 to 130 or something like that. And uh, I've still got to go through the upper house where they've got a majority, but I doubt there'll be any, uh, because they've got a majority, there won't be any issues with that. So basically, in essence, Canada's firearms registration for long arms is 100% gone. I think the only ones they'll have to register is certain types of centrifires and pistols. So that's a huge win for Canadians uh, everywhere. That's, that's amazing. Congratulations to Canada. Canada, the westernized country, similar to Australia, has finally seen the light. Uh, and same as New Zealand did in the mid-80s, they realised millions of dollars, or actually in, it could be into the billions, depending how long their registry's been going, it's cost them billions. All this money should have been redirected into housing, you know, should have been redirected into education, hospitals, and all this types of stuff, instead of just totally wasted, erroneous money that's now gone for a registry that they're now banishing. So... Uh, what was the point of putting it in in the first place just to do an expensive exercise in uh, fertility so uh, very very uh, big congratulations to Canada Uh, they've done a great job over there and uh, it's quite disheartening because while Canada are getting rid of their firearm registry and are rejoicing you know most New South Wales uh, residents here in Australia are heartbroken because they're relaxing their laws and in New South Wales our laws are tightening with stupid ridiculous ammunition laws that aren't going to do a single thing. And it's just heartbreaking, me being you know, born and bred in New South Wales, living in Sydney. Uh, it's just very disappointing. And uh, shame on some of these uh, political people that create lies and deceit to make themselves feel good, to keep their jobs, um, instead of tackling the real crime. And uh, you know, it's very, very shameful that people in these positions can, can make up such uh, lies just to buy votes. Uh, at the polling booth, which is, you know, make sure they look like they're doing something in the media. Very, very disappointing, I must say. But uh, I'll get on my soapbox again for a few minutes before we get into the show. Don't forget, jump on our Facebook page, Australian Hunting Podcast. AH Podcast on Twitter. You can uh, subscribe to our Twitter feed. And also, you can download the Australian Hunting Podcast from the iTunes uh, website. Uh, There, you can jump on iTunes and type in Australian Hunting Podcast. You'll get automatic downloads, which is probably the best way to go about it. Uh, Every time a new episode's uploaded, you'll get, say, automatic downloads through iTunes. You know, like me, you can throw them on your... uh 
on your on your on your iPhone so you can listen to them at work. <laughs> so uh, just like I do sometimes at lunch. But uh, yeah, you can you can throw them on your uh, iPod and iPhone, etc. Uh, what else we got to get into? You, that's right. If you want to email me, you can uh, Australian Hunting Podcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear your thoughts. You know, any criticisms or uh, uh, what you like about the podcast. If you had any ideas of people you want to get on, I've already had a lot of people interv- uh, sorry email me and say who they want to get on the show, and I'm doing my absolute best to try and uh, persuade one or two people to get on my show, which I know you guys would love to hear from. So. That's pretty much about it. Uh, a few things have happened over the last uh, month, as I said, in New South Wales. So, you know, hopefully we're going to change. So get out there, lobby your government, and uh, try and do the best uh, you can. Before we do, One last thing before we do get into the interview, I, th- I thought I'd mention too, don't forget, uh, Barry O'Farrell also introduced legislation to try and stop uh, political donations um, from uh, fishing and shooting organisations to, to the Shooters and Fishers Party and other, obviously, other uh, political entities too. Now, this is a huge blow, uh, not only for the Shooters and Fishers Party, but a lot of the other smaller parties because uh, I think Barry O'Farrell uh, wants to stop this, uh, you know... Uh, People that have the uh, upper hand uh, in the legislative council, uh, it's, and it's just disappointing that you know now uh, individuals will have to donate money. Um, no doubt, a lot of the smaller parties will probably go under if they can't get the political donations. And uh, you know, you get out there, join your local uh, political party. If it's a Shooters and Fishers party, join them. If it's Bob Catter in Queensland, donate some money, even if it's ten or twenty dollars, whatever you can afford. Join their party. Uh, it's it, it's it's muchly needed because uh, this new legislation uh, is obviously going to try and put a lot of these small small parties into oblivion. So, and I, and I don't think people realise the magnitude of this legislation. And you know, I mean, double SAA gave the Shooters and Fishers Party four hundred thousand uh, dollars. That can no longer happen. So um, that's a lot of money to try and replace from uh, Shooters and Fishers in New South Wales. So go to the, go to their websites, donate, join their uh, political parties. And do the best you can. So I guess uh, that's a long rant, but in saying that, what do you think we should get into our interview with Mike Yardley? So I hope you enjoy this one. So without further ado, let's get into my interview with UK shooter, hunter and journalist, Mike Yardley. Hi, I'm Mike Yardley, talking from the UK. I'm a shooter, I'm a hunter, I'm a journalist. I've written more than 3,000 articles on shooting. I've taught more people to shoot than I can remember. I want to promote shooting. I have a passion for our sport, and you're listening to the Australian Hunting Podcast. All right, Mike Yardley, uh, welcome to the Australian Hunting Podcast. Mate, thanks for coming on the show, really appreciate it. I know a lot of people have been uh, hassling me to get the uh, the UK sensation on my show and have a chat to you about hunting and shooting. Well, Jason, it's a pleasure to be on your show, and I have some very happy memories of Australia, both memories of travelling there and of shooting. So Australia's a special country for me. I've got many friends in Australia, and I can think back to all sorts of adventures in the outback, you know, a long, long time ago, I went over to Sydney to, to marry an old army friend off. He's still in Australia, I'm happy to say. Then I went down to Ad- Adelaide, went across to Esperance, came up to Fremantle, Perth, came back, spent some time in the outback hunting as well. Um, it's a great country and it's a great pleasure to talk to you. Uh, thank you, absolutely. So I guess, you know, for let's say the people that, you know, that might listen to the show that may not know who you are, which is probably fairly unlikely, um, 
uh, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, especially in your background, say, uh, with, within journalism and also within the hunting and shooting instructing background? Well, I, I've been in this industry for a long time. In a very, very long time ago, I used to be an army officer. And I left the army and I became a psychologist. And I had a particular interest in visual perception, which has proven very useful with my shooting instruction. I went back in the army. I represented Great Britain pistol shooting in the army um, against the, the other academies. I was at um, the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst, which I'm sure many of your viewers um, or listeners rather will be familiar with. And there was a guy there who was a Commonwealth medalist, and he taught me how to shoot a pistol well. I'd always been interested in shotguns. I was brought up on my grandmother's farm in Kent. Um, I was interested in clay shooting from an early age. I actually had to, I had one of those hand flingers. I had to throw my own, throw my own birds and learn to shoot them. But my very first gun was a 177 air rifle, an old Webley. And my first shotgun was a 9mm Webley garden gun. That's a 9mm rimfire. And I, I shot a cream cracker. And I'm afraid the second thing I shot was the sparrow that came to eat the bits. So I might go back a long, long time to this board. And I, you know, shot in competition, um, won the British side-by-side championship some years back. I think it was 2004. Many, many clay shooting competitions. But I'm not just interested in competition. I'm interested in, in the whole culture of shooting, the history of shooting, the traditions of it, and the people, the society of fellow shooters. You know, I've got brothers and sisters who shoot and hunt all over the world. And I try my best to speak up for them whenever the chance arises. I mean, in the UK, I'm the spokesman for the Shooting Sports Trust. Just recently, I had a pretty hectic day where I made 25 broadcasts in a single day after we'd had a tragedy involving a shotgun up in the north of England. And then the point I made there was that, although it was a terrible thing, if people have homicidal intent, whether or not you know they've got a gun to hand, where there's a criminal will or an, an unbalanced mind, they usually will find a way. So I, I don't think gun control is the answer to gun crime. And we, we saw in Britain, after the terrible Gun Blaine tragedy, they banned legally owned handguns. And what happened was, more or less, the, um, the homicide rates for handguns doubled after the ban. And I'm not saying the ban was in any way a good thing or that the two were related, but the fact of the matter is that banning handguns didn't ban handgun crime or handgun homicide. Yeah, absolutely. We uh, in Australia here, we're having issues now with, especially in Sydney, with a lot of drive-by shootings and, you know, the, the anti-gun lobbies have come out, you know, blaming, you know, in, in a nutshell, blaming the, you know, licensed shoot. I mean, we've got very, very stringent uh, firearm laws here in Australia. I mean, we 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 can't own... Well, unless we have an absolute genuine reason, like you're a farmer, we can't own, you know, semi-automatic shotguns or pump shotguns, or we, you know, basically we're limited in shotguns to side by sides or under and over shotguns, and, you know, that was because of our '96 uh, Port Arthur, Tasmania, uh, shootings down there. So, you know, we've got, you know, very, very strict, stringent laws, and, um, you know, sometimes, you know, the, the the gun crime is getting more and more out of control, and we're starting to see more and more yet. The apparent buyback, the 1996 buyback of all the you know semi-automatic rifles, or the semi-automatic shotguns and pump shotguns, hasn't really done a darn thing. So, you know, I guess that'd be a good question to probably head off with too. What do you what do you think about the laws in the UK, and do you think they work, and 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 what could they make better in the future? Do you think? Well, I think this whole issue internationally is fascinating, and we do see an increase in what's technically called a mock killing right across the globe. It's not just with guns, it's with other things, but sometimes it's with guns. We saw those 
terrible killings in Scandinavia recently, Australia. Um, the States has one, roughly speaking, about once a year, and we've had a few in the UK as well. Um, Hungerford, Dunblane, and, and one other more recently. Is the answer controlling legally owned guns? Of course it isn't. We know that the real thing is this. It's what's going on in the person's head. If you have someone who has a, who has a disturbed mind, if they have suicidal or homicidal intent, they will find a way. And it is quite interesting, just taking the UK example, because I happen to be very familiar with it at the moment, there was a lot of media attention. And the media always talks up gun crime. But there was a lot of media attention of uh, multiple killing. And then just before it, there'd been another multiple killing, funnily enough, by a police officer, but that had involved a knife. And then a few days after the multiple killing with a gun, we saw a similar number of people killed in an arson attack. So it's got nothing to do with the object. But what the media tend to do is they tend to talk up hysterically anything to do with firearms crime. And I've been on the other end of this because... When I left the army, I became a reporter. I worked for Time for a while, the American magazine, as a photographer. I, I did wars. I was in Lebanon. Um, I was in Beirut. In fact, I was kidnapped in Beirut in the 1980s before Terry Waite and John McCarthy. So, you know, I've seen quite a lot of this stuff at first hand, and I've been shot at, blown up, you name it. I've been on the wrong end, been on the wrong end of uh, an AK. And, you know, you can remember people phoning up news desks in New York or wherever they might have been and being asked the question, have you any bang-bang? The media is in love with guns in the bad sense. And if you look at TV today, what's it all about? It's all CSI. It's all about crime and murder and the misuse of firearms. The proper use of firearms, the proper sporting use of firearms hardly ever gets any coverage we re very rarely get fair coverage in the media. There's the odd exception. Um, you were lucky with the, uh, the Olympics in Sydney. You had some fantastic shooting going on there. You've got some great, great talent in, um, in Australia on the shooting front. And, and those guys did get some support, which was, a, which was a good thing, a fantastic thing. But generally speaking, the media does not treat shooting fairly. And I think that irritates us all in the shooting world. And we don't quite understand it because... We're a significant minority of the population. I mean, in, in Great Britain, what, about 60 million people, maybe getting on towards 70 now, but well over a million people shoot. That's quite a lot of people, and they don't get a fair hearing normally. And so it's part of my job, or part of my, not just a job, it's a vocation to try and speak up for them. And I will do that wherever I am. I mean, I've helped the American NRA. I've been working occasionally as a researcher or as a consultant for them in London, and they're very effective politically. People may criticize them. They may say they're the redneck gun lobby. They may say all sorts of rude things about them. But one thing's for sure in the States, if you're a politician, you don't introduce new gun legislation without thinking about it very carefully because the NRA, NRA is a very effective lobby and they will marshal support against what you try and do. And they take the approach that any legislation that um, conflicts, of course, with the um, American existing Bill of Rights um, is legislation that they don't want and is fundamentally unconstitutional. Now, in the U.S. context, I think they're probably right. The U.K. context is a rather different one, and I think something that people don't generally realize is just how little gun crime there is in the U.K., and that certainly applies to the UK media. For example, in an average year, we have something like 40 or 50 firearms homicides. 
If you went to the US, that would be over 10,000. If you went to South Africa, it would be nearly 30,000. And it goes without saying that nearly all of those homicides involve illegal weapons, often weapons that are associated with drug turf wars. And unfortunately for sporting shooters like us, our sport is visible. And so we often pick up the flack for things which are really not related to us at all. Yes, there's the occasional tragedy involving a legally owned weapon. That's a fact. It's happened. But are we saying that if those legally owned weapons weren't there, that those tragedies wouldn't happen? We know that's not the case. That's not the way the psychology of it works. The weapon is only part of the equation. And meantime, I do think there really is a lot of black propaganda about the shooting sports, which are the most inclusive, great set of sports that you could possibly imagine. I mean, there's such a huge variety of them. I mean, everything from, you know, game shooting to air rifle shooting to clay pigeon shooting. I mean, there's a colossal variety of different sports. And they give a lot of people of all sexes, of all ages, of all races, a great deal of pleasure. And unless you can prove scientifically that there's a good reason that you should stop us going about our legal business, then you shouldn't legislate. It's bad legislation, and you're introducing illogic into the corpus of legislation. And unfortunately, in some cases, that has happened. It hasn't cut down on gun crime. It's hurt a lot of innocent people who shoot for sport. In some cases, it's demonized us. It's made some people even sometimes afraid to speak up and you know, tell people at dinner parties or in the pub or whatever it may be what they do because they become embarrassed by it because of media bias. And I think that is a real issue. So I think the, the thing now is to you know, come out, be loud and proud about being a shooter and explain to people why you do it. And the most important thing, and I say this to all your listeners, if every one of us brought just one more person into the sport, that would be an incredible help. If every one of us brought two or three more in, it would transform the political situation. So before we do anything else, I think that's the first thing that we ought to consider doing. True. It's, it's, it's interesting, isn't it, how you just think, you know, I think we've, we're almost up to, I did read in the news the other day, we're up, almost up to as many license holders now in Australia as we did uh, pre the 1996 shootings down there in uh, Port Arthur. So, but I always say to people, I've said this on several podcasts, Mike, as well, that you know, how do you legislate against crazy people? I mean, if someone's going to do something wrong, um, there's really nothing anyone can do to to you know try and stop that situation if somebody like what happened over in um, was it Oslo with the you know the the, the fellow that you know, dressed as a police officer and you know shot a lot of people that that's just a tragedy and to, for someone to uh, say or to somehow correlate that with my shooting sports say on the sporting clays range over here is just a total offensive it's, it's, it's a, I find it offensive and I'll give you an example we had an ad in the uh, Herald Sun one of our newspapers over here and the anti-gun lobby was saying we had a rural area probably somewhere where you're from over there in Kent in England and uh, they, they said yeah, firearms outnumbered people by like two to one and you know the anti-gun lobby was up in arms and they were you know shouting yeah what are we going to do and this is crazy and all this type of you know propaganda and they were trying to somehow correlate that 
with the uh, uh, the black market and the and the shootings in the sort of northeast of Melbourne, which you know this place is nowhere near the northeast of the Melbourne suburbs where a lot of this crime is taking place. Yet the anti-gun lobby decided to say, well, hang on, we've got people here in a rural area that you know that owns you know more there's more guns than people and let's and let's you know start creating you know media propaganda about it so it's quite an interesting thing how it is you, you, i mean you can't as you said jason you can't legislate for lunacy and what really angers me and i think angers you as well is that you do get a lot of this misrepresentation this black propaganda which does confuse the public i mean of course you can't legislate for lunacy and of course there's no correlation between you know, guns being used in rural areas for one reason or another, and gangbangers either, you know, in bits of Melbourne or indeed in bits of Manchester or London. They're completely different things, and they confuse the apples of gun crime with the oranges of gun sport. And it does make me angry. It also makes me angry because the media themselves do, if you like, get off on gun violence. They make billions of dollars a year from it, they promote it in many ways. I mean, if you look at the violence that you see typically in action movies, are you telling me that that does not have some effect on young thugs? And then by contrast, go to your local gun club and see some 12, 13, 14, 15, 16-year-old kid who's learning to shoot sporting clays, let's say, who's learning self-discipline, who's learning a great sport, who's enjoying the camaraderie of it, and he's also physically and mentally developing as a result of it. And these things are not related in any way whatsoever. And I see them and hear them misrepresented by the anti-gun campaigners. And you have to explore, and I am an experimental psychologist by my own academic training, you have to explore what it's really about in their heads. And I tell you, I think in a lot of cases, it's because they're people who wouldn't get any public attention otherwise. And by running these agendas about, you know, they can be saving the whale or it can be anti-guns or it can be whatever it might be, they suddenly become more important people than they would be otherwise. Um, the problem is that they're hurting real people's lives and the people they're hurting are us. But it's more important than that even. By distracting the political and public attention away from the real problems, for example, drug-related crime, they're actually hurting the public ultimately as well because these problems aren't getting better, because the law is focusing on the wrong thing, resources are focusing on the wrong thing, and you don't get a solution to some very serious social ills. Yeah, no, that's right. I think even uh, in a few of the advertisements I've seen on you know, newspaper websites in the last couple of weeks, I mean, even, even the police here are starting to in one of the articles last week, have basically said, you know, it's not the, the law-abiding shooter and, the, and the, they've got to start stamping out these thugs, you know, committing, normally it's drive-by shootings with handgun, but handguns, but it's not always that too. It's other types of crime. and But, you know, they never also address knife crime, which knife crime is getting way, way out, you know, way out of control these days. So, you know. Well, that's a very good point. I mean, of course, knives... And we're not even talking about, you know, Rambo-esque hunting knives. We're talking about domestic kitchen knives, hammers, stuff like that. Those are the things that kill people in the greatest number. And you mentioned that terrible tragedy in Norway recently. I think it's very interesting that that guy made a bomb, as well as, you know, using a gun in a terrible way. He also made a bomb, just as the recent multiple killing, killings we've seen in the, um, in the UK, um, the four 
or five that I've looked at recently, one in, one involved a firearm and all the others invo- involved knives or arson attack. So um, there's a problem in that you can really put, it's called animism. You can confer upon the, ab- the object itself, the gun, sort of magical qualities as if a gun is specially dangerous. Well, that's a sort of pagan way of thinking. A gun isn't specially dangerous. Is a gun any more dangerous than a motor car, a cylinder of gas, a can of petrol, diesel fuel initiated by some sort of detonator, you know, one of the most common terrorist bombs? Of course it isn't. Um, but it's as, if, it's as if it was. And people go, oh, shock, horror, children are shooting. I mean, that's one that particularly gets me. Because all the kids I know that go shooting, whether it's you know, target air rifle shooting or clay shooting, they're great kids, and it's doing them a world of good. And if you listen to the anti-gun campaigners, you think in some way that this was a perverse activity. And it is the very opposite of that. And it is infuriating and frustrating to hear our sport misrepresented so often by silly people. Exactly. And it's not exactly like the, you know, the kids are going down, maybe they might be learning sporting clays or... You know, you know, as long as if they're running down the streets of London with their shotguns after dark. And, well, and that is the impression, though, that is sometimes given. And, of course, in the UK, you can't be a young person and shoot without supervision of someone who's an adult. And that's often misrepresented. And now they're talking about putting, you know, I, I don't know if this will actually become the law, but it could become the law, that there may be a minimum age limit before you can actually touch a gun. Well, I think that would be a terrible thing. It would be a terrible thing, particularly, not just for sporting um, reasons, but also for people who live in the country, for, for kids who you know, may live and work on farms. I mean, they need to be taught gun safety at an early age. But just on the sporting front, it would be a terrible thing because it would be denying kids a great sport for no good reason. It's just hysteria. It is, mate, it is. All right, we'll get to our next question here. Um, you've certainly had a great career as a journalist. I mean, do you mainly write articles for guns and their use, or do you write on other subjects as well? Well, I've written on just about everything. And I used to be a defence specialist. I started my journalistic career taking pictures of war. Then I started to do journalism in that area, and I became a specialist in the, the field of terrorism. And I've written quite extensively there. I mean, I wrote the um, last chapter of the Oxford History of the British Army. I wrote um, essays on the Special Air Service and the Army of Northern Ireland in that work. I've written several military works in a biography of Lawrence of Arabia called Backing into the Limelight or T.D. Lawrence, a biography, depending on where you are. Um, And I'm very interested in those sort of subjects. As well as that, you know, I've knocked around in some very odd places in Africa I was in Afghanistan in the um, 1980s, up on the border in um, Peshawar with the northwest frontier province. I made several clandestine crossings of that border um, as a journalist, and then later as a medical volunteer, um, because I had a a friend of mine who he ended up as an accountant in Atlanta, um, who was commanding one of the then Mujahideen groups, who were our allies, and you know he was a he had a picture of George W, and excuse me, George W's father um, up on his shelf shaking his hand, and these guys were on our side then, so the, the world changes. Um, but that was an interesting experience. It was an interesting experience as a journalist. It was interesting to, to go up into those hills and to, um, to go and try and dodge the Soviet army. Uh, quite an intriguing deal, and Africa's an intriguing deal. 
But what actually happened to me, and again, this is quite an interesting story of itself. When I started to do more shooting journalism and when I started to do more broadcasting, supporting shooters in the shooting sports, I had a telephone call from somebody very, very high up in the media business. And um, I won't tell you who it was, but I will tell you this. They were very, very high up in the, um, the news organization of something that would be immediately recognizable. And they said to me, well, Michael, what's all this stuff you're doing in support of shooting and shooters? And I said, well, it's my sport, and you know, this is what I do, and I believe in what I'm saying, and I think it's been unfairly criticized at the moment, and you know, I will speak up and defend it. And he said to me, well, that's always what it may be, but if you do, you won't be getting so many phone calls from us in the future. And you know what? I'm afraid he was right. On that front, on the, my, you know, the work I used to do as a commentator on terrorism, as a defense journalist, um, the phone doesn't ring so often. And so I've written, and they did me a favor in a way, more and more on shooting. I think my record was the month before last when I said I had 17 articles in 15 different magazines, and God goodness knows how many film and other projects going on. I mean, on the, um, the website I started with my son, and I hope people will go and have a look at it, that's um, positiveshooting.com. Um, we've had over a quarter of a million hits since our launch on the various films. There's a positive shooting film, but there are many others. We must have had something like 750,000 people click on to those, which is a fair few. And it seems to be growing exponentially. Um, whether that means I will be able to retire to the Riviera one day, I don't know. But it is my life. It, it, it's my passion, too. I love to hunt. I used to love to shoot sporting clays in competition. But uh, my favorite thing these days is to hunt. Um, I love to shoot birds. You know, it doesn't really matter. I particularly like doing it in places where I haven't done it before. And I particularly like it when there's a bit of adventure involved. And, you know, that might be going after piggies in the outback. Um, that might be going to Botswana. It could be um, up in the hills in... Um, in the Karoo part of South Africa, which is uh, a very interesting area too, or it might be, you know, wandering around in Montana. Uh, it doesn't really matter. But if it's somewhere new and it's something exciting, that's great. I've, I've been knocking around the Balkans quite a lot recently, Croatia, Serbia, countries like that. And um, I've just recently come back from Hungary, and I was using the, um, the new Browning 725 shotgun, if I can perhaps give that a plug, because it was a pretty good... Pretty good, pretty good gun. I was impressed with this, and it's uh, a is that, gun. Is, is that an under and over? It's an under and over, and it's distinctly different from the old three two five, four two five, five two five sort of under and over. It's of the same family, but it has a new trigger unit. It's lower in the action, and it was a you know a very good gun. I particularly like the sporting version. I tend to like shotguns that are a little bit heavier with longer barrels. Um, that's what I've got used to, and I was using that to shoot pheasants in Hungary, and I'd better not tell you, well, I suppose I can tell you how many pheasants we shot. Um, we shot nearly a 1,000 pheasants on the first day, and I think 600 and something on the second, so um, that was quite, quite, <laughs> quite a hunt. Sounds like uh, you've got the life, a, that's for sure. Well, yeah, I took a, bit of, took a little bit of stick for shooting so many birds, but... That is the old European tradition called the battu, from the French word battre, it's a hit, where the beaters go through the woods, you know, knocking, knocking the trees to, to push the birds forward. 
And I'm very interested in the traditions of shooting and where it came from. And actually, driven shooting, which is a big deal in, in, in the UK, as you all know, you know, driven pheasant shooting, um, partridges, and of course, famously, grouse in Scotland. That actually came to the UK with Albert, the consort of um, Queen Victoria. And before that time, so we're saying before the 1850s, 1860s, the, the Brits thought it, um, or Poms as you'd call us, thought it a bit undignified and a bit unsporting to, to shoot these birds in that quantity. And it was something that European princelings did, the Germans and the French and others, um, people like the Elector of Hanover, and they did it really to show off their wealth. And it was an ostentatious display of wealth, and it really was, it, it, it wasn't a good thing, really. It was not done very well. It became a big deal. You see it in films sometimes where, you know, you get a thousand peasants who drive every living thing across to a team of not very expert guns who would shoot it. It might be deer, it might be birds, it might be boar, it might be all of them. And they'd shoot to them with possibly an orchestra accompanying it and um, very strange stuff, huge panels like something from a circus with scenes painted on these canvas panels. There'd be deer driven over waterfalls, all sorts of weird and wonderful stuff. If you, you dig out the old books, you'll see it. And um, that gradually evolved and became a bit more civilized in France um, before the French Revolution and to a degree after it. And um, Albert brought it over from the, the, you know, the German states where it was a fairly popular practice. And you might say that the Brits civilized it and they introduced um, rules that were much more severe and um, standards of sportsmanship and that sort of stuff. But still, I mean, that's one way of shooting. And I, I, would, I wouldn't knock it because if you ever see a British gamekeeper working on a good British sporting estate, it is a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful skill. It's like seeing some, you know, great artist or an artisan craftsman maintaining a skill, you know, breeding birds, whether it's partridge, um, whether it's pheasant, or whether you're dealing with wild birds, as you are with Scotland, with the, the heather, which needs to be burned back periodically to, to have um, a good grouse population. It's an extraordinary skill, and these guys are countrymen with skills that would otherwise be lost. And it's not just good for the shooters and, you know, the shooting sport itself. It's good for the countryside. And it is a check to prairie farming methods because, you know, for shooting, you need to have copses of trees. You need to have hedgerows. You need to have lots of biodiversity. And generally, it's a very good thing for the countryside more generally. Um, but that said, that sort of shooting is expensive these days. And there's another sort of shooting, which I still love to do, which is what we call rough shooting, where you might go up and um, you know, put, a, put a pheasant or two up with a, a dog, perhaps a, a spaniel or your, you know, your favorite lab. And that's a, a much lower, um, it's a, a much more relaxed pace of shooting. It might, might be solitary, you might go out with a mate or two. And um, that's a very enjoyable thing. In the States, of course, they do it over pointing dogs, ironically English pointers, which we, we don't use that much here anymore. And you might go up and use those for pheasants. You might put up partridges. You might put up rough grouse. Um, and in the southern states, quail shooting um, is very popular. And um, so that's a, a whole art in itself, using pointing dogs. And you see that in southern Europe, too. 
And then you see other forms of shooting in southern Europe and indeed in northern Europe. Driven boar shooting is very popular as well as driven bird shooting. And in Australia, when I was there, of course, I can, um, you're probably going to kill me for this Australian accent, but I can, I can remember when I was, you know, there with um, my friend Dickie, who might just be listening to this to marry him off in Sydney. And he set, sent me off to his then wife's family cattle station at a place called Boomai, um, or very near to a place called Boomai in New South Wales, and yeah, a fair old way from Sydney, so I think some five hours, as I remember. And um, I was greeted there by some lads, and they said, oh, hello, Michael, we hear you're a shooting man. And I said, well, that's right. Well, they said, would you like to shoot a piggy? And I said, oh, that sounds great. They said, well, we'll get some tucker in you, and we'll get out in the ute after that, and we'll you know, see if we can get you a pig. And <laughs> um, I hope that's not too bad an accent. And um, so we uh, had, the, had the meal, um, got in the ute, went down to um, the Lignum thicket, and the thorn, you know, these thorn bushes where the pigs tunnel and go and try and wallow in the river mud or what's left of it. And they said, right, take the torch, take the Winchester, crawl down the tunnel there and you'll get yourself a pig. And I said, come on, you must be joking. I said, no, 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 straight up, mate, take the torch, shine in it, shine the tor- torch in his eyes and you get yourself a pig. And I said, well, let's just, let's just assume I'm crawling down that tunnel. That's it, that's it. I see the pig. Yeah, you got it, mate. I bring that old Winchester of yours. There's an old Winchester semi-automatic then loaded up with um, ball bearing shot. And um, I bring that old semi of yours up in a jams. What happens then? Well, you bleep, bleep, bleep then, mate, aren't you? <laughs> so I guess... Um... Um, so now that was one happy memory. And um, I actually shot my pig in the long grass with a 270 Seiko. And they were just winding me up with this old... Um, old Winchester they had, which was a yeah, absolutely knackered old um, semi-auto that actually had a missing end, so the, the working parts were with his back, so um, not a gun. Certainly an interesting uh, story, no doubt. I've, you've probably got hundreds of them, no doubt. But let's say, let's get a next question. I know you shoot an array of firearms, but what gets Mike Yardley excited? You know, is it shotguns, pistols, rifles? What, what's your forte? What do you, what do you enjoy the most? Well, I think you'd say I was a shooting generalist. I enjoy anything that involves pulling a trigger, and I can admire any gun that works. I think it was Jack O'Connor who once said, the only interest in rifles are accurate rifles. Well, I'd say something similar about guns. I like any gun if it works. Function never, you know, function comes first. Form never trumps function. Decoration never trumps function. It's how it works that counts. So shotgun-wise, well, I'm afraid you guys can't use them anymore, but I still love to use a gas-operated semi-automatic, and I've got an old Beretta 303, and in fact, I've got half a dozen of them, and my favorite one has a 32-inch barrel, which is a model they only made briefly. A lot of successful sporting shots these days use 32-inch guns, but you won't see many 32-inch semi-automatics. And that's a great gun to shoot because it's very pointable, and it's you know, it's swingable too because you haven't got so much weight forward, and um, it's a delightful gun to use because of the reduced recoil. Is that the one I think I saw a, a video of you on YouTube? Was that the one you were uh, pigeon hunting in Serbia? Yeah, that's that's my old faithful. But I'll use a KM4 32-inch Cayman as well with lightweight barrels. I enjoy using long-barreled um, 12 bore over and unders. And I enjoyed using the new um, Browning 725, as I said, very much. And you can see the results of that on YouTube if you go to Mike Yardley shoots the new Browning 725. 
And any gun, I think the way the gun handles is important. I use 32-inch 20 bores as well. Now, I'm not saying those 32-inch guns are right for everybody. They're certainly not the gun of choice for inexperienced shots. And particularly, you know, youngsters and ladies may not be able to deal with that much forward weight. But I do like the pointability of the long guns, and I like it both for game shooting and for clay shooting. Rifle-wise, I tend to use... I have a 308 Stur Manlicker Stutzen, that's with a short, full-stocked gun, and that's taken an awful lot of game of many deer in the UK. I've used it in Europe, and I've also used that in Africa for planes game. But for pigs and planes game, I tend to use an old 300 ticker, and that's been rebarreled by a firm that's famous in the UK called Border Barrels, who, amongst other things, make the barrels for Accuracy International and also um, for some of the bits of Delta Force, which is the American um, SAS-type unit. And um, the guy, Jeff Colby, who's behind um, Border Barrels, is an extraordinary guy because he's got a PhD in um, in physics, and um, he's particularly interested in the physics that relates to um, the surface of the sun. And um, somehow he got from that to making some of the best barrels in the world. I mean, he's pretty, I don't think, I, 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 can, I can say it without being rude, but he's pretty obsessive about accuracy and makes some extraordinary stuff. And he's a, he's a great character. He also is into vintage marmalade. And, and old motorbikes. And um, when he was working in the States as a physicist, he, he bought a couple of these old Pratt & Whitney rifling machines, which he literally put in a shed and kept forever and got back to England somehow. And he's built now a very considerable business. I mean, there's some great companies in the States like Schillen and Hart and you know, several others that are so well known for their accurate barrels and, and indeed in Australia. Um, but... Um, Jeff's operation something special, and he rebarreled that gun, which is an old Ticker 65 with a, a long action, and um, I've used that with some success. The only thing I would say, it's a push-feed action. Um, it doesn't have the controlled feed. It doesn't pick the rim of the cartridge up and guarantee its entry into the, um, into the chamber, and I did have one incident where a pig charged me a, a while back, and I had a stuff-up. And very happily, that pig went past my ankles and didn't actually come for me. So I've now got a 375 Seiko, or Sarko as well, which is a semi-controlled feed action, similar to the old Mauser 98. And those are the guns that a lot of professional hunters prefer because they are super reliable. I mean, I like ticker guns, and I endorse them a lot because they're one of the most accurate guns you can get out of the box. Yeah, yep. most of my guns are ticker too. I've got two rifles in um, two two three and seven millimeter oh eight, so they're quite quite good. Yeah, and you can't you can really you can't go wrong with them as a make uh, as, a, as a make. And similarly with Seiko, the Seiko products are a little bit more expensive, but again very well made, and, and it's not millionaire level money, and it's um, very good quality stuff. And I've got a three seven five Seiko eighty five, which is a, a step up on the seventy five. It has the semi-controlled feed on the bolt head. It has a, a magazine that's more secure. It has a slightly better, um, slightly better stock on it as well, and, that, and that's a, a very good gun. And I have a, a big bertha for um, up close and personal stuff in Africa, which is a, a 458 lot um, made by Paul Roberts in London, and that was based on an old Bruno action, which is similar to the CZ action, and that's. Um, 
saved my life on one occasion when I was being charged by an elephant. And I might add, I didn't want to shoot the elephant. I'm not particularly into to elephant hunting, but um, I was in a situation where I didn't have the choice. And the, there was a black pH to my left and a white pH to my right. And the black pH um, took a shot at an elephant that was coming in at us, um, having just taken down a tree. It's about 60, 60 yards out. And he had an old CZ-375, and he took a shot at, I suppose, about 25 yards and shot over the beast's head as it was charging in towards me, unfortunately. And um, his magazine floor plate gave way, and all his rounds fell in the dirt. And he was, a, he was a great hunter, a very experienced, wise old guy. But I'm afraid his gun had seen better days. And I was then left with this elephant charging, and the, um, the guy next to me with his rounds in the dirt, and the guy on the other side of me not really seeming to do very much. So um, with some regret, I shot the elephant. But um, this is a strange sort of deal. I mean, I suppose there'll be people out there who'll wonder what you're thinking about when that happens. And I had a Swarovski scope on top of my rifle, and actually I was pretty pragmatic when I saw the beast starting to charge in. I had a red dot on the side, and I can remember just flicking that little switch on. And it doesn't all happen in clean, open ground. In this case, this beast was coming through fairly dense cover, although we'd seen it out at 60 yards. And um, when it came in close, it was quite a difficult proposition. And I, I do think that the sight with the red dot was um, a great help in those circumstances. But I wouldn't go elephant hunting for pleasure. I do go buffalo hunting occasionally for pleasure, and um, that is a, a very exciting business too. So I guess speaking um, of that, what... what... Uh, what, what is your favourite game? I mean, what what do you like hunting? I mean, you've been all over the world hunting, and you know, I guess you've been obviously you hunt in England as well. What's your what's your favourite species or what type of hunting? Do you like big game? Do you love wing shooting? What's your what's your favourite, Mike? Well, you know, on on Friday I was out clay shooting with a friend. We probably shot a hundred birds just together for fun, and then we had a, a lunch in the pub afterwards. And um, I had a, a quiet smoke of a cigar, which was one of the, the last Cuban cigars I had left. I'm not a particularly rich guy, but I'll enjoy a, a cigar maybe a dozen times a year. And that was a lovely day just of itself, just a simple, simple day. But um, I was double gunning on grouse in um, Scotland last year, and that's real millionaire sport, and I was lucky to have a couple of days of being invited to do that. I would say that was some of the best wing shooting in the world. Um, I love the pigeons um, anywhere, whether it's British wood pigeons, whether it's um, Rockies in Southern Africa. That is fabulous sport, or the pigeons in the Balkans. Um, pigeon shooting is, you know, superb. Yeah, I love that. I love my wing shooting. I'd love to get over there one day, and uh, or either that or Argentina, and shoot some doves, doves or pigeons. That's a that'd be excellent. I love wing shooting. I, I'm, I'm jealous of you guys. Your wing shooting over there. Well, you know, the, I mean, the Argentinian thing is great, and they shoot colossal numbers. I mean, I had a, a team of 10 guns I heard of recently, and they went over there for three and a half days, and they shot, and you barely believe this, they shot 90,000-plus birds. Now, that's not, that, that's not really for me. I mean, I have gone out on occasion, and as I said, I was in Hungary recently, and we, we shot 1,000-odd birds in a day, but I've been out, and I've shot no birds in a day or no deer in a day and still had a great time. And I can go out and shoot half a dozen birds um, and have a great time. Indeed, I can remember one occasion in West Virginia where I went out and I shot one roughed grouse, but there was three, three of us shooting and six dogs. 
and I was the guy who happened to be lucky enough to shoot the grouse. And that's still a very memorable event. You know, just as I went over, I used to go over to the States every year for the first day of deer shooting. And I used to go to Pennsylvania. Some of the listeners will have remembered that old film, The, the Deer Hunter. I'd go to Western Pennsylvania, where I had friends, and I'm hoping to get out there this year. But I used to go every year for the first day of deer season. It's a big social event out there. They close the schools. They've got gun shops the size of supermarkets. I mean, you really wouldn't believe it. They've got um, you could various seasons. They've got bow hunting seasons. They've got muzzle loading seasons. And in Pennsylvania, you've got to use a flintlock, but it might have an orange fluorescent stock and a stainless steel barrel, but it's still a flintlock. Um, and they have normal center-fire rifle seasons. And that was a fantastic deal. And it took me five years before I actually shot a reasonably good um, white-tailed deer. Uh, and that was a very memorable hunt. Um, my last buffalo hunt in, in Africa, that was um, not so long ago, that was a, a, a very memorable deal, um, not least because at one stage we came up, I suppose, to within maybe 10 or 12 yards of, of a herd of buffalo at night, and um, the PA, or just as dark was coming on, and um, the PH wanted me to take a shot, and I actually didn't take the shot, because one thing I always say to people, you're responsible once you pulled the trigger, and I didn't want to take that shot because I couldn't be sure of it, and I didn't want a wounded buffalo in the dark. So whenever you pull a trigger, you are responsible. And, of course, we might also say, just while we're on the safety message, two golden rules, never point a gun at something you don't want to shoot. Second golden rule, every time you pick it up, make sure that it's unobstructed and unloaded before you put it away, put it down, give it to someone else. And if you live and breathe by those two rules, you just might be safe. But there is an accident waiting to creep up on all of us, and you've got to be active on the safety front. But coming back to the hunting, um, I've been hunting cow buffaloes recently because they're a lot cheaper than bulls, and um, you know the meat tastes just as good. And I have a personal philosophy, an ethical philosophy, that I've taken a long, long while to think through, I suppose, but it boils down to this. You can shoot it if it's a pest, you can shoot it if it's edible. You can shoot it if it's a danger to either human beings or to livestock. Those are the three reasons that you can shoot live game. And, you know, the, the best thing of all is because you're going to eat it. And I think as, as hunters, if, if you do go out, whether you're wing shooting, whether you're shooting other species, and you do eat what you hunt, it gives you a different relationship to meat than most people have. They go, you know, they go down to the supermarket or the local shop and meet something that comes in a pack with a plastic wrapper on it. Well, for people who hunt, it isn't. You, you know what meat is. You know, you, you, you dressed it. There's nothing more satisfying than, you know, shooting game that you've shot. And in fact, we just in this particular household I'm speaking from now, just gone through a phase of eating an awful lot of pheasant and partridge because I'm trying to get into the... Yeah, and they are, they're delicious. But I'm trying to get people who shoot to eat more of what they shoot. And to, you know, if you don't know how to cook it, you don't know how to prepare it, learn how to do it, because apart from anything else, these are tough economic times. And it's actually very cheap as well. It's delicious meat, it's good for you, it's healthy. It's about as green as anything, green as anything gets. And it's cheap. I mean, what more could you want? No, exactly, no, I totally agree. Do you, even, do you like eating the pigeons too, and say the pigeon pies, or...? Yeah, but I, I, with the um, here are my two um, tips, if you like. I mean, as far as the pigeons are concerned, just take the breasts off them, 
And if you're shooting bigger birds, what I tend to do now is I just pull the skin off, so I don't get, I don't bother myself with all the, the plucking. I just pull the skin off, and so I'm left with the, um, with the carcass and the legs. And um, you know, you can you cut cut the head off and gut them, and it's um, it, it's a two-minute job, and it's not a particularly messy one. Um, although my other half tends to to kick me out to do it in the garden or wherever, but it still. Um, takes a lot less time and it causes a lot less mess than than if you pluck the thing. So I tend to take the skin off birds now, and I find that's a quick way. And because of that, you know, we get the chance to really enjoy a lot more game meat than we used to. That's just a simple, practical deal. Exactly right. I love eating my game meat. But I, I've got a couple of uh, listener questions for you, Mike, as well. One's from, uh, well, his username on the forum is Choke Wrench, but uh, he says, with the, with, with the proliferation of Turkish guns on the market, which are definitely attractive to the price-conscious gunners, do you think they offer enough in terms of quality and shootability and present good value? If not, what steps possibly could these manufacturers take to close the gap between the old faithfuls, such as Miraku, Browning, and the Berettas? Yeah, well, that's a very good question. And I've been to Turkey a few times. I've been to some of the gun factories. And there's some very good value guns that come out of Turkey. I mean, the Hulu factory, that's spelled Huglu, H-U-G-L-U. They produce some um, very good side-to-side and over-and-under guns at um, attractive prices. There was a Hulu 28-bore side-to-side I particularly liked. Some of the um, over-and-unders coming out of Turkey can be a little bit clunky. Having said that, there's some pretty good and very well-priced 20 ball over numbers coming out of Turkey. Um, on the semi-automatic front, I don't think they've quite cracked it yet. I mean, I've shot a lot of Turkish semi-autos, and I haven't found that they handle as well or that they're as reliable as you know, your good old faithful um, Berettas and Brownings and similar, and Benelli's for that matter. And I also think that when you look at a gun, for example, like the Browning Maxis or there's the new Beretta Outlander, these guns are very good value for money, relatively speaking. And I would pay that little bit extra or indeed consider buying a, a second-hand Beretta 303 or something like that um, before you necessarily go out and buy something cheap and new. Um, there are some terrific buys to be had, particularly on the older models, and some of the older models are actually splendid guns. I mean, you know, to take an example from the shotgun front, where you're, you're, I, you know, I suppose your listeners won't be able to buy a Beretta 303 um, because it's an auto loader, but um, some of the old Beretta over and unders are terrifically well-made guns. And on the rifle front, you know, we mentioned um, Ticker. I've got a, an old Ticker. Um, 65, there's a Ticker 55. I mean, these are beautifully made guns at um, very reasonable prices if you can find them. So um, they're always worth considering if you can find these old guns in mint condition. It may be a better thing to buy than, you know, a cheap modern gun. Um, That said, because of the revolution in computer manufacturing, CNC manufacturing and similar, there are some extraordinary bargains coming out at the moment, and the Turkish guns are getting better and better. And rumor has it that the Turks are already not only buying their machinery from the Italians, but making some parts for some Italian gun companies. So um, Turkey is one of the countries that's got colossal gun-making growth. By contrast, and rather sadly, Spain, where they still do a lot of traditional gun-making, um, is having the same sort of problems that Birmingham did, Birmingham in the UK in the 1960s, and their trade is declining. 
that's where they still have a lot of artisans making guns the old way on the bench rather than using computer-controlled machinery. Um, so that's rather sad. And then you might also look to the States, where I believe there's now something like 200 million guns, believe it or not. And I'm told that a million and a half guns were sold before Christmas. So that's pretty extraordinary. And that is a completely different situation to, to anywhere else in the world. So, you know, if you ask me a question about self-defense and firearms, I might give you a different a different answer in the UK to the one I might give you in the US, because in the US, because there are so many guns around, because guns are the norm, because nearly every household has a gun, I think, you know, there is a very good case for citizen self-defense with firearms. In the UK, there's very little gun crime. I don't think there's a you know, I don't think there is really. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I mean, what I was saying before, that, that we still can get some semi-automatics and pump actions here in Australia, but you have to have a genuine reason. But just for the average licence holder, they're sort of not available. You must be sort of, you know, have a business or, you know, uh, be like, you know, have a farm or something like that to get access to some of those firearms. So, I mean, I've got a Browning Maxis myself, and I, I love that shotgun, you know what I mean? I shoot sporting clays with it. Um, it's one of my one of my favourite auto loaders at the moment. Well, it's my only one at the moment, but uh, certainly a certainly a great firearm. But in speaking in that, I guess, how did you come up with the positive shooting technique, and how did you come up with the system to teach shooters to be a better shot? And, and is visualising the target more important when trying to say mentally prepare for a shot? Okay, let's let, let's let's just talk about that for a minute. Well, shotgunning. What is the most important thing? Safety apart. The most important thing is maintaining focus on the target, sustaining fine focus on the target for the two or three seconds that the shot takes. Now, as mammals, we have this wonderful thing called binocular vision, and it makes the judgment of speed and distance easier. It's great for hand-to-eye coordination, and it's a complicated subject, but I would suggest that most people shoot with both eyes open, but there's a significant minority of people that can't and probably nine out of ten women are not well advised to shoot with both eyes open, or at least without the vision of the eye opposite the rib obscured. Um, so most people, though, should shoot with both eyes open. And your prime task to shoot well is as you see that bird, whatever it is, whether it's a game bird or a clay target, is to lock your fine focus onto it and to keep locked onto it. And that will indeed unlock in you all sorts of extraordinary powers of hand-to-eye coordination. When I came to invent what I now call the positive shooting system some 20 years ago, maybe longer, maybe 25, basically what I did was go and look at the very best shots and see what they did. I looked at my own shooting and my own competitive shooting, and I saw that most people who shot clays really well did the same thing. They positioned their body to where they were going to shoot the bird, where they were going to break the target, they took their barrels back to where they first saw the target as a solid object, where they first saw it clearly, and then they took their eyes back, not to the trap, but where, to where they saw the target as a blur. And so that's the first principle of positive shooting, that you go through that preparation routine for each shot. Body to the break point, gun barrels back to where you see the target clearly, eyes to the blur. Before you call for the target, visualize a kill in your mind's eye, and then as the target comes out, lock your focus onto it, 
let everything happen naturally. And what you end up with is that the barrels actually start more or less with the target. They're not behind it. They're not in front of it. So you're not swinging through from behind. You're not maintaining a lead. They're naturally starting with the bird and naturally come forward of it and keep your eyes locked on that target or the front edge of it and it will break as if by magic if you maintain focus and you keep moving. There are a few other secrets. You've got to keep good upper body rotation. You've got to keep lifting the front of the gun well with the front hand and that's not a natural movement. And it might also be said that actually locking your focus on to the bird is not a natural deal. Because as mammals, what we do is we make what's called a saccadic flick of the eyes to any movement in our visual field, and it's a primal response to danger. But as soon as we've assessed that moving object and decided that it isn't a threat, we soften focus. So in the context of shooting, you've actually got to overcome that and sustain the focus, not for momentary focus, but for two or three seconds. And that is a skill. It requires you train your optic muscles, it requires that you have an awareness that you need to do it, and it requires a lot of practice. And you will find that as you learn to do that, as you scare each bird to death, it will make you a much better shot. Does that work in every shooting situation with a shotgun? No. I think most people, once they go outside a comfort zone of maybe 30, 35 yards, they may need to use a more deliberate technique. And you should experiment with different techniques, with swing through, um, with pointing at the bird and pushing in front of it with maintained lead, which you can either do instinctively, as John Bidwell suggests, or you can do in a measured and deliberate way, as many American um, skeet shooters do. So that would be my advice on, on shotguns. On rifles, just while we're at it, we might as well throw everything in. If you're looking through a telescopic sight, don't just put the crosshairs on the beast. Look for a specific part of the beast and stare that part of you know, that target to death as well and then take your shot don't take it in a lazy way be just as careful in your visual discipline and on pistol shooting for those of us who still got the chance to shoot pistols there i think we overcomplicate pistol shooting all you need to shoot a pistol well is to maintain that epsilon relationship of the front and the rear sight that's that e on its side with the rear sight and the front sight precisely um, related to each other, you know, the front sight exactly in the, the notch of the rear sight. Now, it doesn't matter if you shake, everybody moves. What does matter is that at the moment you pull the trigger, that you're maintaining that relationship as well as you can. And you can experiment. I mean, even if you move a lot, you're not going to be moving more than half an inch. And if you can maintain that relationship, that epsilon relationship, the E on its side, whether it's with a pistol or with a, a rifle with open sights, you will hit the target. And if you move an inch um, even, you'll only move an inch at the target end if you maintain that relationship precisely. So it's all about visual discipline again there, except the focus is on the front sight rather than on the target as it is with shotgun shooting. Yep. All right, I've got about four or five questions before we finish off. But speaking about the positive shooting technique, Dan says... He'd like to hear you discuss positive shooting, but how it relates to or builds on the approaches discussed by people like Churchill and Ruffa, I think if that's correct, involving focus on the bird, a moving mount and shoot approach, because he said we seldom here in Australia, uh, we largely seem to hear of a more conscience technique like swing through and sustain lead. Uh, he also says, 
how does how does conscious technique differ from say positive shooting and is it a viable learning tool when uh, learning to shoot with a shotgun yes not only is it a viable learning tool i think a lot of people are best off to start with a conscious approach and let's keep it simple let's say you want to shoot a target at 12 o'clock let's get the footwork right first take half a pace forward onto your left foot if you're a right hander and then create a straight straight line, front shoulder, front hip, ball of the front foot, nose over toes. That's your body position. Now, if you're teaching someone to shoot, one of the simplest things you can do is if it's a clay target, you might be standing at station two at Skeet, you can just get them to point at the target with their finger. So you can say to them, look, the target's coming now, I want you to point at it, that's it, point, point, point. And you just get them to point at it initially, deliberately, getting that pointing relationship and you can sort their vision out at the same time we've not really got time to go into the idiosyncrasies of eye dominance but that is another subject you've got to sort that out now if you can get somebody to point at the target you can get them to then push in front of it or they can point at the back edge of the target and then push through and in front and see the trigger so i'd often teach somebody to shoot in that deliberate manner but i wouldn't get them to measure the lead I just get them to point at the target deliberately, point at probably its back edge, push through, see a gap, pull the trigger, bang. Now, as they get more and more comfortable with that, as they get to take on board the idea that they can't shoot at the target, that they've got to shoot in front of it, then you can start to train them into the positive shooting way, which is, which is an unconscious approach like Churchill's. The point about the Churchill technique and the rougher technique which comes out of the Churchill technique was basically Churchill said, stare at the target and you don't need to do anything else. You'll always put the lead on automatically. Well, that's not quite true. You've got to always worry about gun movement. And in the positive shooting system, I say there's three things for the perfect shot. You need sustained visual contact. You need balance, particularly balance at the moment you pull the trigger, and you need timing. All good shooting is done to three-beat time if you're shooting gun down. One, two, three. One, two, three. One as you see the bird. Two as the muzzles come to the back of it or to the bird itself. Three as you take the shot. It's always three beats, and yet you'll so often see poor shots mount on the gun early. They'll rush the mount and then slash at the target, and they'll often rush to a stop. But the good shot is effortless and relaxed, and you'll see that lovely, smooth one, two, three movement, and he seems or she seems to have much more time, and that's a, a, a much better, better way to shoot. But the deliberate methods and the positive shooting method are not mutually exclusive, because often when I go over 35 yards, 40 yards, I'll start to use a more deliberate method. I'll use swing through as a method to find line and, and to generate momentum. Sometimes I'll use maintained lead as a method to buy time or for some very difficult shot where I, I might have an idea of the, the precise lead it needs. Although I'll warn you that with maintained lead, you often tend to miss in front, where with other shooting systems, you tend to, to miss in the back. Um, and I'll also say on, on the rifle shooting front, because I'm equally interested in rifle shooting technique, I mean, I, I've developed a new pair of sticks, um, and I always try and shoot a rifle if I'm shooting at live game off sticks because I want to make sure of my shot. If I can't get two sticks, I'll cut a stick in the bush if, it's, um, if there's anything around. Always better to make your firing platform as stable as possible. And if you're shooting non-dangerous game, 
I like to use a sling. You don't want to use a sling in a dangerous game because you might get tangled up in it in some circumstances. Um, I always believe, particularly when you're game shooting, to try and make it as easy as possible for yourself and also because you have a humanitarian duty or an ethical duty towards the beast to harvest that game as efficiently as possible. Absolutely, mate. Um, we discussed at the start you worked as a photojournalist in uh, you know, Syria, Lebanon, Albania, Kosovo, etc. You were seized off the street in Beirut uh, in 1982. I mean, can you tell the listeners more about that? What was it like? Was it you know, horrific, frightening? What was it? Yeah, just tell the listeners a bit about that, if you don't mind. Yeah, no, sure. I'd be d- I'm delighted to. I wasn't actually in Kosovo. I was up on the Kosovo border at Kukus during the war and delivering aid convoys down through Albania, which was <laughs> quite a hairy enough experience in itself. Um, but Beirut was an altogether different deal. Um, I went through to Beirut in the spring of 82. They were having similar sort of problems in Syria to the ones you're seeing now. I was in Hammer just after they had a massacre there. Nobody knows how many people died in that massacre. It might have been 20 or 30,000, and I arrived sometime shortly afterwards and nearly didn't leave Hammer. Syria was a very scary place then as it is now. And then the, the Israelis were massing up on the Lebanese border, and, and you know they were about to invade and I could see as a journalist that's where I wanted to be in Lebanon. I didn't have the right paperwork. I went through to um, Amman in Jordan. I saw a Jordanian historian who I um, wanted to interview for my book on Lawrence of Arabia anyway, and managed to get through um, some contacts there, the papers I needed, and I went back to Damascus, and I took a Syrian service car, which is effectively a taxi, with a Lebanese businessman and a lady who did a nightclub act with a python, through the massing Syrian armor on the border and drove basically into the war in Lebanon, which was an extraordinary deal. And I ended up at a place called the Commodore Hotel in Beirut, and that was ground ground central for all the, the journos and hacks. It was a in, sort of intriguing place where the sort of chandeliers would rattle in the morning at breakfast and you'd pretend nothing was happening. And um, that was my base of operations, and I would go out and take pictures of what was going on, and that was um, quite a spooky sort of deal. And one day I was on Alhamra, which is the main drag in um, the main drag in Beirut, and I had not got um, my camera barely up from my waist to take a picture. Somebody on the New York desk had said, "Hey, Mike, we want pictures of street life returning to normal," and I said, "It's not normal. There's a there's a war on." Um, and I brought a camera up, and just as I was bringing the camera up, suddenly out of nowhere, there were probably a dozen AK muzzles sticking into my head. There was a, a ring of steel around me, and I was suddenly being dragged off, and these guys were saying, Americani, Americani, are you American, are you American? And I was going, la, 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 Inglesi, Inglesi, no, I'm English. And um, that is a horrible moment, that moment when you are taken and you feel totally powerless and scared and, um, well, not so much scared, but bewildered, but you've also got to keep your head and try and, you know, keep keep your head and try and find a way out of this. And the guy in the, the, at the back of the, the gunman was saying, are you English, are you English? And I was saying, yeah, 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 I'm English, I'm English. He said, ah, I was a, a student in London. I said, oh, that's a small world. I was a student in London. And at that, they started the, you know, the guys took the 
the guns down from my head and they were a little bit less aggressive. They were being you know, manhandling me and it was very scary initially. And um, he said, you know, my friends, they want to take you away. This isn't a good thing. And I said, no, no, I understand that. And he said, oh, yeah, I don't talk. think it's a good thing at all. <laughs> so, and um, we went and we talked probably for a couple of hours in a cafe. One of the curious things about Lebanon and particularly Beirut is it doesn't matter if there's a war going on, there's always a cafe open. I should think it's changed now, but there was always a cafe open there. And we sat down and we talked. And he told me his life story, but then they dragged me off to another place, and I got a bit worried because, you know, the further you get away from where you originally were, the worse it gets. And we got to another location, and there was an old guy on a chair on the pavement, and he was crying. And it turned out that this was some elderly Jewish guy, and these guys had taken over his house and were ransacking it, and there were all these teenage thugs with AKs and um, you know it was a very unhappy and sad deal and um, they took me into this house and you know this conversation continued and I kept talking to this guy and he kept saying you know talking about these other people and what they wanted to do and um, I was actually looking at a photograph the other day that I took in the middle of this and um, I can send you a copy if you like. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. We'd, I'd love to yeah. have a look at it, yeah. Yeah, you can um, you can see that I hadn't only for the first time saw that one of these kids had a pistol in his hand and I knew he was looking at me and I knew he was thinking about shooting me. But um, happily, he didn't shoot me. Um, and this guy said, eventually, you can go. And I said to him, well, what's going to happen to you? He said, oh, I'll probably get killed soon. And I said, have a nice day. And also have to say that I left that poor old guy still sitting on that chair and wondered whatever happened to him because that was a, a terrible time. And war is, war is stupid, you know. I said, let, let me just say one thing serious. You know, we're talking about our sport, but we've seen a lot of war lately. And I used to talk about terrorism on TV for you know, all the major networks. And basically what I used to say, and it comes out of both my military experience and my psychological training and my historical interest, is that conventional war is a really dumb way to approach a terrorist enemy. You can't really deal with a terrorist enemy by conventional war. You've got to do it in the, in the way that the SAS used to do, um, which was to, to go for the hearts and minds of the people first. If you don't get to the hearts and minds of the people you know, you'll never win that war. And we've seen that um, Iraq was really a disaster and Afghanistan's a disaster. I mean, I used to cross over those hills to go on raids or to take pictures of the Mujahideen raiding um, Soviet advisor bases in Afghanistan. So just the sort of thing that goes on now. And it was impossible, really, for, you know, you could see they, they were just mosquitoes coming over and, um, you know, having been pretty ineffective. But it was really impossible to do much about them because we could always disappear back across that border and disappear into the tribal zone. And you just will not defeat a terrorist enemy with a conventional approach. It just doesn't work. And it's a terrible waste of young British and Australian life, in my opinion, um, and Americans, young American kids to do it. And I have to say that I think a lot of immoral, very wealthy people have made billions of dollars out of insecurity in Iraq and Afghanistan 
I mean, the, the size of the fortunes that some people have made out of these wars is indecent, and yet we haven't solved the problem. Indeed, if anything, we've made the problem worse, and we've, you know, sending a predator missile and um, destroying a house and then, you know, accidentally killing another dozen people um, only means that another potentially dozen families are going to be your blood enemies forever. That, that isn't the way to, to fight these wars. That's not to say I don't think we should fight them. I think we should. I think, with a, you know, I'm, I'm all for a fighting them in a, in a subtle and covert way. I'm all for, you know, saying to the godfathers of terrorism, look, watch out if you, if you kill people. If you use these wicked methods and you do your wicked business, we will come and we will get you. But you won't know when it will be. You won't know how it will be. You know, you might have a car accident. It might be a heart attack. You know, it, it, it might be a predator missile in some cases. But I think we've used lethal force far too promiscuously, industrialized legal force. And I think it's a stupid response to terrorism. But, um, but that's the, the military analyst in me speaking, not, not the, um, the sporting shooter. Mm. Well, I've got one, just two questions to finally finish off. Uh, I know you are, because this one's actually dear to my heart, the uh, beautiful uh, and city and states of uh, Dallas, Texas. You're in the uh, Discovery Channel's documentary on recreating the Kennedy assassination in Dallas, Texas. Um, It was really interesting for a start, let me just say, but how did you become part of that? And what did you think of the whole experience? And from obviously you were you were a major part of that. Does it does it do you think it all adds up to one shooter like the police and government say? Because I've been to Dallas quite a few times, Texas, and I, I, I yeah, I love the place to say the least. So yeah, just I'd love just 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 from my own personal experience, I'd love to just hear you just talk a little bit about that before we finish off. Well, everybody's interested in the JFK assassination. I came to it. I did some other programs for Discovery and History Channel. We did the um, the death of the Red Baron, amongst other things. But um, they were looking for a, a what they call a sharpshooter to to reenact the um, original event. In the, and this is the first documentary, which is a while ago. And this was basically to see if the shots against the moving car were possible. And Oswald allegedly took three shots. He was allegedly behind um, the vehicle in the book depository on the sixth floor. You may have been to the sixth floor museum. Yep, sure have. Allegedly, he missed the first shot, which was at about 45 yards. He connected with the second shot, which was at about 65 or 66 yards, shooting um, shooting JFK, the president, um, and shooting through him and going in and wounding Governor Connolly. And then the third shot was the fatal shot, which took off the, the right side of um, JFK's head tragically, and that was the, the fatal shot. Now, so many questions in this. Are the shots possible? Yes, they're possible. I've proven that. I've made them many times. Um, Oswald actually missed the first shot, connected with the second two shots. There's no question in my mind that any competent rifleman would have a good chance of making those shots. Um, the weapon was a 65 millimeter Manica Cocaino carbine. Um, 65 millimeter ammunition was ideally suited to the task. The weapon itself is pretty average, but probably on a good day might manage a three-inch group. So it was it was good enough. Um, the angle of the shot, when you compare the Zabruder film, that's the eight millimeter amateur film that was taken of the day with the angle of the book depository and the angle that Oswald allegedly shot at, it perfectly matches 
um, the forensic picture. So I am 90% certain that Oswald was the shooter and that he did indeed shoot from the book depository. I've also done a number of experiments and we made a second program about the grassy knoll. I don't think the shots came from the grassy knoll because if you think about it, if a shot had been taken side on at JFK's head, that shot would probably have wounded or killed Jackie and it would have also created a completely different wound to the one that, we, that we've seen. But there are some very strange things in this case. I mean, quite a lot of the evidence has disappeared. And if you look at um, Oswald himself, he had an extraordinary past. He was a radar technician on the U-2 project. Um, allegedly, his hobbies were colloquial, colloquial Russian and Marxism. Now, as someone who was brought up in the States in the early 60s, I just don't believe that. I just think that that's... You know, just so unlikely. I mean, that would be like saying you were a Satanist. Well, I think if you said you were a Satanist today, it wouldn't mean very much. But 20 years ago, it might have. And certainly, you know, 40 or 50 years ago, it would have been a big deal. I just don't believe the story about Oswald. And he allegedly got um, fed up with the Marine Corps, got fed up with America. He then went to Moscow via London and Helsinki, went to the Soviet authorities and said he wanted to become a Soviet citizen and renounce his U.S. citizenship. Um, they said, F off, you're mad. He went to the American legation in Moscow and said he wanted to renounce his U.S. citizenship. And they said, F off, you're mad. And he went back to the Russians or the Soviets, as they then were, and said, look, I, I mean it, and if you don't let me do it, I'm going I'm to kill myself. And they said, welcome to one of our comfortable Soviet mental institutions. So he then went into that. He left that and was given, as I remember, a, a job in a, a sheet metal factory in Minsk and befriended and later married a KGB colonel's niece, um, became disillusioned with Marxism, went back to the States, lectured briefly um, and broadcast on, um, on Marxism and um, also gave lectures to the Jesuits, strangely enough, and three weeks before the assassination, visited the, um, the Russian and Cuban legations in Mexico City, came back and got the job in the book depository. It's all a very weird and suspicious deal. Was he a lone nut? I tend to think not. I tend to think one way or another, whether he knew it or not, he was being run as somebody's agent. Did the shots come from behind and did he pull the trigger? I think almost certainly yes. But just to complicate the whole issue, I then went on to look at the Robert Kennedy assassination, and I can say with beyond reasonable doubt that there were more than there was more than one shooter involved in that. The assassin there's name was Sahan Sahan. He was a, um, a Palestinian. The examining physician at the time of that incident said that he showed signs of what might have been hypnosis. Um, the weapon that he was using was a 2-2 gate loading. Saturday night special. He didn't reload it during the incident. He came into the steam room of the Ambassador Hotel and said, um, Kennedy, you son of a bee, and started firing. His hand was um, pushed down onto the steam table, but he kept firing. Um, Kennedy's fatal wound, though, was to his mastoid and certainly looked to me as if it came from behind. And there's a lot of conflicting witness reports. But however much you count 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 up the bullet holes in the wounded, they're between 10 and 14 bullet holes to be accounted for, and yet the assassin had an eight-shot weapon. 
well, you'd think it would be easy. You'd think they'd still have the ceiling tiles, the, what they call the door jams, the door frames, um, all the stuff where all the bullets went. Well, they don't. They've all been burnt. They've all disappeared. You'd think they'd have done a comparison test um, on, the, on the murder weapon. No, they haven't. Apparently, um, too many police officers went to the, um, the LAPD range to test fire the weapon for souvenir purposes, and the LAPD claimed that it, it couldn't therefore be forensically tested, which I find strange, considering it was a, a 2-2, and you could probably put thousands of rounds through a 2-2 and still have some sort of meaningless or meaningful test through it. And I think what may have happened in that case, it's possible that the uniformed security guard next to or behind Kennedy may have shot him by accident in the melee. That's one hypothesis. And it's also interesting that that particular security guard was known sometimes not to carry his regulation 38 revolver, but sometimes replaced it with a 2-2. Um, so that's interesting. But what is definite is the history books are wrong. There wasn't one gunman, there were two. Yeah, no, it's certainly... Uh especially the Kennedy in Dallas, Texas. I mean, I love going to Texas. I've got a couple of good friends there. And it's, when I saw that documentary, sort of, you know, it's dear, it's dear to my heart. And, uh, you know, Dallas, Texas is definitely, you know, one, it's a, an, I've been hunting their pigeons over in, uh, on the opening day in pigeon season back in uh, 2009. And uh, it's just a great place. But uh, you're going to be part of my new segment, Mike. This is the second last question to finish off. And it's going to be a very, very hard one for you because you've got, you know, many, many years experience. But if I said to give me in 10 words or less one of your most personal, uh, it can be a hunting story or one of your best, that's something that's dear to your heart on one of your best personal accomplishments or maybe a hunt that you know, stands out in the life of Mike Yardley in 10 words or less. I know it's going to be really hard for you, but... Uh... I'm going to make the answer to that simple. It was the day my son and I won the Father and Son Challenge in the British Schools Challenge. Excellent, mate. Nah, fantastic. I, I was just, yeah, nah, it's all. I mean, I don't have any children yet, but hopefully one day I can, you know, pass on, you know, just just like you have the, you know, the tradition of hunting and shooting, and um, you know, a tradition that's been going around for, you know, many many decades and, and thousands of years. Yeah, you know, I guess since the men of time, isn't it? Yeah. So, um, I guess so if people wanted to, let's say, they want to go on your website, where are they going to go if they want to get in contact with Mike Yardley for some, you know, positive shooting training? They want to learn how to shoot a shotgun. Where can they go? Who can they talk to? Who can they email? And uh, yeah, just give us all the details to the listeners. So, because we've got listeners far and wide, Mike. So from uh, you know USA, England, Australia, we're not just Australians. So if people want to get to become a better shot gunner or just anything to do with firearms and you know utilize your services, where can they go and how can they do that? The, the, the first portal, Jason, is you can go to www.positiveshooting.com, which leads to a lot of other places. You can go on Facebook to MikeYardley'sPositiveShooting.com and you can like that page and you can talk to me there and post your questions and you know we can interact there. Um, you can go onto YouTube and you can find my films there. Just put in Mike Yardley Shooting as a search on, on YouTube or indeed you know you can go to Amazon or something like that and you'll find a, a lot of my books available there. And um, I, I have a lot of contact with people. I mean I, I don't hide myself um, you know, I, 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 I love to talk to shooters. I, I love the brother and sisterhood of shooting. I love to, to get comments and um, questions from people all over the world. And it is just a wonderful, a wonderful social sport that we're involved in and a sport that has just a, a fabulous history and tradition. 
And it's so important now that we do fight for it and fight for its future. And I'll start where I began and say, if everybody listening to this could bring in one, two, or even three more people into the sport, that would just do us so much good for the future, particularly young people. Mike, thanks for coming on the show, mate. I really, really do appreciate. It. I know you have, you know, many, many years and wealth of experience in the, uh, you know, shooting hunting community, and uh, getting, you know, that positive word out there. You know, that uh, you know, shooters are good people. You know, they do the right thing. You know, we're not criminals. Um, you know, you give an unbiased view on a lot of things that you do, and um, you know, it's great seeing your videos on YouTube. And you know, as I said to you in uh, when we've been emailing each other, I've had a lot of people saying, "Get Mike Yardley on the show. Get Mike Yardley on the show." I've always seen him on YouTube, and I've watched a lot of his stuff and you know you, you sort of seem to be the face that's always just you know popping up everywhere within the shooting industry and you know it's good to have people that have gotten you know the status that people will listen to you I mean you've as you said you've been involved in you know uh, uh, cases involving firearms and it's good to have someone that you know people will listen to and you know get that voice out there for you know the hunting and shooting and as you just said and that's good advice to the listeners out there just if you, even if even if you can get one person into it you know that's that that's going to change the whole situation tenfold so mate i really do appreciate coming on the show and um hopefully many uh more in the future eh? well it's been a lot of fun jason and all i can say is good shooting and farewell You've just been educated, and this is the Australian Hunting Podcast. Thanks for listening. See you next time.